Well, good morning. Uh, you can be turning in your Bible to John chapter 3. Uh, I've been thinking about this text for a while, and, and it's amazing to me, you know, here the opportunity comes that I get to uh, expound on it a little bit. So, um, and, and then again, just I couldn't help but be just utterly amazed at how well the music lined up with the text that I'm going to preach so I have to, I'm wondering, I was going to flip back and see, well, what was Shane going to preach? Because that sure seemed like the same thing. But I'd like to start this morning before we look at our text and just give you a really brief testimony. And I mean, really brief testimony of my life. It was uh, quite on the rails for a lot of years. So we'd be here all day if I went into to the depths of it. But Briefly, my family moved to Atlanta in 1960, and I realize uh, probably the vast majority of y'all weren't even around then, and I was uh, the ripe age of seven years old. And you know what? We were a very religious family. We attended the Catholic Church in Sandy Springs. Back then, if you can believe it, Sandy Springs was the outer suburbs of Atlanta, now they're part of the city. One of the rules we had growing up when we started to drive was you can't cross the river. You know, that was like going into unknown territory. So grew up in Sandy Springs. And unfortunately, the Catholic services at that time, or maybe fortunately, because I didn't understand them, but they were done in Latin, right? And how many seven-year-olds speak Latin? Uh, so needless to say, there wasn't much understanding gained from me or any of the other young people there, probably not from most of the adults either. But being in the South and growing up here, most of my friends weren't Catholic. Most of my friends were Baptist. And it wasn't long before I began to hear the words born again a lot. And I had no idea what that meant, no idea at all. When someone would say, you know what, Tim, what you need is to be born again. My response was, well, I'm Catholic. I'm telling you, I hung on to that. That's what was going to help me gain favor with God. Well, I met a young lady. We were both very, very young uh, and we got married and I didn't have a real job. So I joined the army. And uh, signed up, did seven years in the military. And at this point, there was no talk of religion there whatsoever. So I had seven years of no talk of God, no exposure to God whatsoever. And then after release from the military, 12 years of a very dark time in my life, 12 years of rank paganism. I was a, a, a drug addict and an alcoholic. And if you take that and then fast forward to 1991, and I won't give you all the circumstances that led us to a Baptist church. If you want on the side, I'd be glad to go into that with you at some point in time. But I can tell you this, it was 100% providential, right? I mean, I can look back over my life, y'all, and I can see God weave just like this, getting me to where he wanted me to be so I could hear those words again. And that's the text we want to look at this morning is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The preacher read the text there. We'll look at that in a minute. And there were those words again, born again. And I leaned over to my wife and I said, there's those Baptist words, be born again. And she said, I know. And, yeah, and you know what? All of the sudden, I'm telling you, all of the sudden, you must be born again, really hit 
home. It made sense. I knew that's what I needed. I knew that's what I needed. He hadn't even expounded on the text yet, and I knew that's what I needed. And that's what I wanted. So what was the difference? This was very perplexing to me. What was the difference hearing those words this time? I know I'd heard them. People in my, as I said, younger days uh, talked about them. I went to to young life meetings from time to time in high school, mainly because the girls were there. But, you know, those guys were very evangelistic. and, And I know I heard the words there. So what was the difference this time? Well, the difference this time is that God had removed the veil that Satan had me blinded with. Second Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 reads this. And even if our gospel is veiled, which it was to me, it is veiled to those who are perishing. I was perishing. In their case, the God of this world, little g God, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I thought my whole life that being Catholic was what I needed. I didn't know anything about being saved. Being Catholic would at least in my mind get me to purgatory, right? And and at least I wasn't in hell. That, that was my thinking. I hadn't murdered anybody, and as far as I knew, that was the only sin that would really get you out of purgatory and into hell, but you couldn't go to heaven without going through purgatory first, so I was fine with that. But now I understand that religion, religion is not what saves or causes a person to be born again. So read with me John chapter 3, and let's see why religion can't save you. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. One of the greatest lies that mankind has believed throughout history is that religion can save you. By religion, I mean an adherence to beliefs and practices of any type of religion in the hope that your performance will gain you a right standing with God, whether it's Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, or even Christianity. There have always been millions of people who mistakenly thought that obedience to their religion would earn them eternal life. I was recently in the last couple of months in Albania, which is a Muslim country. Now, they went from being an atheist country to a Muslim country and in predominantly Muslim country. So five times a day, there's this call to prayer and people stop where they are. And I don't know what they do. They're doing something, praying, I guess, to I'm not sure who. But um, 
on Fridays, Fridays is their Sunday, but on Fridays, they take it real serious. The streets are even, the, the, the mosques overflow into the streets. You can't even get by on your car, in your car or bicycle or walking. You got to go way around, but they are practicing their religion and, and they are very devout in that, thinking that that's what's going to get them favor with God. But uh, it's just outward. It's interesting, really, that when you look at all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it, it's clear that the most difficult people to reach with the Gospel, get this, are not the most notoriously wicked. Those aren't the most difficult people to reach with the Gospel, but rather the outwardly religious are those that are hardest to reach with the Gospel. If you want to get a good example of that, I invite you to go with Jeff Horn, uh, the brother that leads our evangelism here at the church. Go to the city one night with him and you will experience this. The most wicked people are more open to listen about Jesus Christ than the outwardly religious people are. Isn't that incredible? The Gospels give us numerous accounts of corrupt tax collectors and immoral people coming to salvation. They knew that they were sinners and that they couldn't save themselves. But it was the religious crowd that opposed Jesus and eventually crucified him. Did you hear that? I remember when Shane taught that years and years ago. I was astounded. I knew it, but I'd never heard it like from a pulpit like that. It was the religious crowd that did this, right? It was them that opposed Jesus mostly. They were blind to their own sins. The sin, really the sin of pride and self-righteousness and their religion that they, they, they served that, that, but that couldn't save them. It only condemned them. But Jesus didn't come to promote religion, did he? He didn't flatter those who were, were religious by saying that he was glad to see their religious activities and that he too was a very religious person. When the religious leaders complained that Jesus socialized with sinners, he replied, Luke five thirty one: those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, he wasn't saying that some are are, are righteous enough to get into heaven on their own good deeds. What he meant by the righteous here is the self-righteous, the self-righteous people. Their, Their pride had blinded them to their sin and had kept them from coming to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. Look at the end of John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So here we have lots and lots of people believed in Jesus. They saw the signs. They saw the miracles that he was doing. But Jesus didn't believe in them because he could see the true condition of their hearts. These verses serve as an introduction to the story of Jesus and Nicodemus that we read in chapter three. Remember that, you know, there weren't any chapter breaks in the original text, um, So the next verse in chapter 3, verse 1 continues. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. There's also a connection between 
these two texts, chapter 2 and verse and chapter 3, the people who observe Jesus' signs in chapter 2, verse 23, and Nicodemus's opening statement to Jesus, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So a further connection is that Jesus knowing all men and what was in a man is evident in his reply to Nicodemus. Jesus could have, he could, he could see beneath Nicodemus's religious veneer here. He knew that Nicodemus's religion could not save him. He knew that what Nicodemus really needed was the new birth. So this encounter teaches us I don't have slides, but if I did, this would be up there right now. Religion can't save anybody because to enter God's eternal kingdom, everyone needs the new birth by the Holy Spirit. So first, I'd like for us to look at religion can't deal with the fundamental human need, which is to be reconciled to God and enter his kingdom. So John starts out, he tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, we know an awful lot about these guys, right? Mostly from Jesus's repeated confrontations with them. The Pharisees, they were arch legalists. They were known for their rigid observance of the law and, and all the religious traditions that had unfolded into that law. Their, their name actually means separated. And that's how they carried themselves around town, as sanctimonious, holier-than-thou religious elites. You know, the guys with the puffed-up heads and noses up in the air. As the popular theologians of the day, they were at the heart of apostate Judaism. So we get the sense of the depth of their corruption when Jesus cleansed the temple. Remember that? He comes in and wreaks havoc on that. Look back again at chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That was the attitude that Jesus took towards these guys. Now, John also adds that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. This means that he belonged to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem that consisted of 71 members from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were almost all from the, the, the high society Right. And they're they're more political than they were religious. They held some heretical religious beliefs on top of that. And they oversaw the temple operations in those days. But don't think for a minute that the Pharisees would have been not would not have been equally involved with them. They were. And they, they loved the lucrative blasphemous practices that were going on there. So Nicodemus was apparently a leading Pharisee because Jesus in verse 10 of chapter 3 calls him a teacher of Israel. He must have been recognized as a religious authority. Now, think for a moment with me if you were Nicodemus. Can you imagine the excitement that would be in his heart as he has he initiated this discreet conversation with Jesus Christ? After all... He was a professional religionist about to speak with someone who, by his own admission, had come from God. You know, I I think that that haunts me 
think if you had an appointment tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, a personal face-to-face appointment with God, you know, uh, I would be trembling at that. But in spite of, of the Pharisees' blasphemous expansion of God's law, they, they did give them a little tiny bit of credit. They did hold to some accurate theology. They believed in divine decree. Uh, they believed in moral accountability. They believed in bodily resurrection and future punishment and reward. Where they diverged from the truth, though, was believing that they could attain to the kingdom of God by strictly keeping the ritual observances of the law. Nicodemus had worked hard to adhere to these burdensome tasks and, and these expanded laws of the Jews, following the most minute details and the most minute regulations. This, y'all, was a horribly restricted life, a horribly restricted life. For example, you could have a sore throat on the Sabbath so you could swallow some vinegar but you couldn't gargle it. That was one of their rules. You could eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath, so long as the chicken that violated the Sabbath by laying an egg on the Sabbath was slaughtered tomorrow. That was the demanding, exhausting system of works righteousness that Nicodemus propagated and that he lived under. And since those rigid observances of the, of the rituals had no transforming effect on his heart, Nicodemus had to pretend that his piety made him holy and keep his self-righteous facade. Now, John reports to us here that he came by night. He came at night to see Jesus. And there's all kinds of speculations of why he came at night, but I don't know, perhaps I think the most likely is that he was afraid of what the other members of the council would think of him. Some suggest that most of John's references tonight have a spiritual symbolism that he may be hinting at Nicodemus's spiritual condition. D.A. Carson says this, quote, although he was a religious leader, he was in spiritual darkness. Nicodemus seems to have been impressed by Jesus and the signs which he was doing. For a leader of the Sanhedrin to come to the quarters of an uneducated Galilean carpenter addresses him as rabbi and acknowledge that he had come from God was no small matter. No small matter. Well, perhaps Nicodemus uses the word, uh, I mean, he, he does use the word plural there. And perhaps that's because he's referring to some of himself and some of his colleagues but he could also be hiding behind a bit of that so as not to signal too much interest on his part. But in spite of his complimentary greetings, Nicodemus's view of Jesus fell far short of acknowledging him as the Christ, the Son of God. And the basic error of the Pharisees was to externalize religion, externalize it. As I said, they invented all kinds of man-made regulations to even add to the law of Moses as if you could keep that by itself. So they, they, you can't, but they added, they took pride in the observance of these things. And they just kept adding and adding and adding and adding. So much so that even today they're still doing that. 
If you go to certain parts of Atlanta that are that are heavily Orthodox Jew and you go into the grocery stores there, they have a kosher section. I know there's a kosher section in in our stores or not section, but the stuff's in there together, but it's marked kosher. But I'm telling you, you can go to one particular chain in particular, a big chain, one of the biggest. We got them all around here. But in that part of town, if you go in and you look in the bakery, there is a blue green line right down the middle of the bakery. This is the Gentile side. This is the Jew side. And the instruments from this side can't go over here because they, you have to keep, you can't, you know, you can't eat some two things from the same animal. So you can't have cheese and a hamburger. You can't have a cheeseburger. You can have a hamburger, but you can't have cheese on it because those two things come from the same cow. So I went down years ago and observed this and they have a rabbi. They actually have a rabbi on the payroll in each department of the store to be sure that the Orthodox Jews that come in are adhering to the law. And if they have any questions, the rabbi comes out and he's got a book, I kid you not, this thick, and he looks it up. And so I asked for the rabbi and he came out and I said, I've got a question for you. Um, This uh, man over here is looking at these bell peppers and he picked one up. If he were a doctor that just delivered a baby over at Emory, this is real close to Emory, well, then he's unclean and... um, he just touched that bell pepper. Do y'all throw that away? And he said, well, no, we've got, and I, oh, so you've got things where you can bend it a little bit when needed. And he's like, well, well and I said, well, and so he walked back to the meat department with me. And um, sure enough, their meat's in a plexiglass case of its own with the lid sides and the back and the front. So none of the fumes from the Gentile meat can come over here onto the Jewish meat. Can you imagine a, a corporation bending, I mean, the laws that they're trying to keep? There's so much freedom in Christ. Is there not? Praise the Lord for that, right? Nicodemus couldn't do that. A modern day person can't get to heaven by the observance of all these laws. And Jesus blasted them for their hypocrisy as they meticulously cleaned the outside of their cups and dishes, but neglected to deal with the sin in their hearts. And that is the most important thing with the Lord is what is in my heart and what is in your heart. He sees and judges the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Um, he says in Hebrews four twelve and 13, um, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. L- listen to what it does. Piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature that includes all of us and no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We're all accountable to God. He sees our hearts. That's what matters. Well, later, when the Pharisees questioned Jesus about why his disciples didn't wash their hands, according to the traditions, Shane just taught us this a couple of weeks ago, right? I'll read Mark's account instead of the one Shane read. Mark 7, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. 
Those who are in into religion are deceiving themselves by thinking that their outward rituals and rules will somehow make some kind of a favorable favorable impression on God, while at the same time they dodge dealing with the sin that is in their hearts. I was in Egypt years ago, and and I I'm kind of ignorant to a lot of things, and and every guy in this hotel that I was in had this really dark mark right here in the center of their forehead. I thought it was some kind of a of, of a birthmark that a lot of Egyptians have. I, I mean, I really did. So I asked my friend, I said, what is with that? You know, and he said, oh, they're, they're, they're Muslims. Those are the burns from their prayer cloths. They're very devout. And he said, but they're not really. They all have sandpaper in their car. And before they come to work, they rough it up real good to make them look holier than the next guy. Right. Okay. So signs on their foreheads will not make them favorable to God. But of course, it's because God sees through all of that. He requires truth in the innermost being. David wrote in Psalm 51, 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So religion can't gain anyone access to heaven because it only deals with external matters. No, listen, no amount of rule keeping or adherence to religious rituals can reconcile a, a sinner to a holy God. You would think, I mean, really, you would think that Jesus would be elated at the prospect of winning a member of the Sanhedrin onto his team of followers, wouldn't you? I mean, wow, this would be a key guy to disciple. Think of the influence that he could have for, for Jesus and the disciples. Think of how his testimony would impress the other religious leaders, not to mention the common people. But Jesus showed no excitement. He showed no deference and no eager politeness. There was not, not even an attempt at persuasiveness or accommodation. Why? Why would that be? Because Jesus is no respecter of persons. Rather, he cut to the quick, telling Nicodemus in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that statement is was very puzzling to me at first glance because Jesus answered, it says. But Nicodemus didn't ask a question. But Jesus answered. Well, one commentator said, the Lord answered not his words, but his thoughts. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus's heart and answered him accordingly. Three times in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 11 in this interview, Jesus uses the phrase truly, truly. It, it it's, uh, transliterates the Aramaic amen, which came from the verb to confirm. Jesus used the phrase to give added, added significance and attention to what follows, what's getting ready to come. Leon, Leon Morris, the commentator, explains, it marks the words of as uttered before God, who is thus invited to bring them to pass. The point that Jesus wanted to hammer home to Nicodemus is you do not need further instruction in religion. You need to be born again. You need to see yourself as a sinner who needs more than moral religious improvement. You need nothing less than a new life from God. 
Again, Leon Morris puts it in one sentence. He sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. Born again, it's ambiguous and may also mean born from above. The idea is that just as we were born physically, so we need to be born spiritually. Such a birth requires the power of God. Nicodemus as a Jew and as a Pharisee, he he would have been proud of the fact that he was not a Gentile, but he had been born as a Jew. But Jesus shows him that being a Jew, even a very religious Jew, is not enough. He needed the new birth as a spiritual child of God. John wrote in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus says here in verse 3 of our text that we must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Again, D.A. Carson comments on this. To a Jew with the background and convictions of Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom at the end of the age, to experience eternal life and resurrection life. To be a proper subject in God's kingdom, however, you have to be a subject of the king. And that subjection begins here and now, not in the distant future. The problem is, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, those who are in the flesh are by nature, what? Hostile toward God and not able to subject themselves to God. John Calvin infers on this that since our whole nature needs needs a new birth, there's nothing in us that is not sinful. Corruption has spread throughout. So again, we see that all religion in the world, all the religion in the world cannot resolve our basic problem of being alienated from God because religion is based on human works that stem from the flesh and feed our pride. They feed, religion feeds our pride. To be subject to the king, we need the new birth that gives us a new nature that delights in obedience to God from the heart. You see the difference? Obedience to God from the heart because of the work he's done in us rather than us trying to obey all these silly rules and regulations to make us favorable to God. What we need is a radical transformation, not just some behavior modification. We need something that the natural man cannot produce. We need nothing less than to be reborn from above, to be born again. Nicodemus, he he was amazed at Jesus's radical statement that he needed to be born again. Look how he replies in verse four. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, it's difficult to understand what Nicodemus meant by this question. Obviously, he didn't believe that Jesus was suggesting that a person go back in their mother's womb and be reborn physically. Some commentators believe that Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about here, but I I don't. That's okay. We can be different, right? I think D.A. Carson had it right, and he said when, when he suggests that Nicodemus did not understand what Jesus was talking about, his amazement, I mean, in verse uh, seven, it says that, you know, Jesus was amazed. He marveled at the words that he must be born again, that that probably indicates, Carson says, a degree of bewilderment. 
Then in verse 12, Jesus indicts him for not believing what he had just told him, right? Um, he said in verse 12, if, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So with all that, Carson says, Nicodemus's answer reflects incredulousness, which prompted him to answer with a crassly, literistic interpretation of what Jesus said to express a degree of scorn. So another commentator goes so far as to suggest that Nicodemus was insulting Jesus's reply. Kind of like, what are you talking about? Are you suggesting that a man's got to go back in his mother's womb? Um, you know, what a ridiculous idea that is, that kind, that kind of thinking. So Jesus, in verse 5, further explains what he was talking about in verse 3. And we see that, that the spiritual rebirth requires a cleansing from sin and the new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this phrase, born of water and the spirit, has been subject to multiple interpretation. I used to think that it meant physical birth. You got to be born physically first and then you can be born again from above. And if that, you know, if that Jesus was responding to Nicodemus's question in verse four, your physical birth is a Jew, Nicodemus. Well, it's not enough. You got to also be born spiritually. The problem with that is that Nicodemus probably wouldn't have understood water in that way, right? Some think that it refers to Christian baptism, but Christian baptism didn't even exist at this time. So how could it be that? Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus and not confuse him with a doctrine that he knew nothing about. Some say it refers to John the Baptist's baptisms. Other, others argue that water represents the word of God. But would Nicodemus have understood it in this way? Others say that water is the symbol of the Holy Spirit so that both terms can mean the same thing. That's what John Calvin believed. Since Jesus reproaches Nicodemus for not understanding in verse 10, he was probably referring to the promises of Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Turn over there with me for a second. Ezekiel Chapter 36, verse 25. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now here we have Ezekiel predicting a time when God would cleanse his people from their sins and give them a new heart and a new spirit and he would put his spirit within them so that they would what? Walk in obedience to his word. That was the purpose of it. That promise was fulfilled when Jesus ratified the new covenant with his blood and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in all that believe in him. Nicodemus, remember who he is, who knew the Old Testament, he should have connected Ezekiel's prophecy with Jesus's words. Unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that there's a fundamental divide between the physical and the spiritual. He says in verse six that that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Being born 
physically as a Jew in our terms, we would say being born into a Christian family is not enough, right? There must be a second birth that cleanses from sin and creates new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Carson put it, what is in view is a new nature, not a turning over of a new leaf. Just as physical birth happens at a point in time, so it is with spiritual birth. But just as we don't remember our physical birth, birth, so we may not remember or be able to pinpoint our spiritual birth. And you know what? That's okay, right? That's okay. I can point to when mine was, but you don't have to. I'm blessed as one of your elders to do a lot of the membership interviews here and and, and knowing it's it's a blessing to see how many people have have seen God change their lives, but they can't say, well, it was uh, at 2 p.m. on December the 3rd in 1990. You don't have to, right? You, you don't remember when you were born the first time, do you? Does anybody here remember that? You know, do you remember being in the hospital room? Your mom, mom and dad are there and they're freaking out and the doctors and you don't remember any of that, right? So how do you know you're alive? How does a mom and dad know a baby's alive when it exits the womb? It cries. It shows forth some sign of life, right? Well, it's the same now in our spiritual births. We have signs. We can see signs. Your mom and dad, if you're a young person, they can see signs. You know, um, kids can see signs in their parents. Employers can see signs in their employees. Employees can see signs in their employers. The way we know we're born again is by signs of new life in, in heart. Signs like this person now has a faith in Christ and his promise of eternal life. How about they love God? It's evident this person loves God. They have a new desire for the things of God. Thankfulness to God for his abundant mercy in Christ. They hunger for God's word, love for God's people and for all people for that matter. A mourning and a hatred for sin and a desire for holiness. Those are signs that you've been born again. If you've got those in your life, praise God, right? In short, we will have new desires for what God did and not have that we didn't have before. I had a huge one that I knew. The The guy that led me to Christ discipled my wife and I, get this now, for four months, one-on-one -on -one in our home. Four hours every Tuesday night for four months. The second week he came back, well, he led us to Christ one week. He came back the next week. He'd given us a little bit of homework. And I, like I said, I was a really rank, rank pagan. And he came back the next week. Um, we were standing outside and he said, how's your week been? I said, it's the weirdest thing in the world. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I used God's name in vain six times this week. How did I know that? You ever think of that? And he's like, really? And I said, yeah, you know, it would have been six times in 60 seconds before it was six times in the whole week. And every time I did it, I felt like something was stabbing me in my gut. And he just started laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? I'm serious. And he said, I think you got the Holy Ghost. And I, I said, I don't know what I got, but I got something. Right. And I mean, there was a sign, something that I did as normal as putting shoes on in my language. God changed. I think, you know, to say it simply for somebody like me, God changes your want to's. Right. I used to want to do this. Now I want to do that. Right. Now, it's not that I never desire to sin again. I do, unfortunately, but one day I won't, right? Praise God for that. But rather that the new direction of your life will be marked by these new desires that come from the new birth. I'd like to conclude this morning by reading a story 
uh, from the late 1800s. True story. Years ago, Bishop John Taylor Smith, a former chaplain general of the British Army, was preaching in a large cathedral on the text, You Must Be Born Again. He said, my dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You, you may be a member of a church, but church membership is not new birth. And except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. The rector was sitting on his left, pointing to him. He said, you may be a clergyman like my friend, the rector here, and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. On his right sat the archdeacon pointing at him. He continued, you might even be an archdeacon like my friend here and still not be born again. But except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might even be a bishop like myself and not be born again. But except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Several days later, he received a letter from the archdeacon, which read in part, My dear Bishop, you have found me out. I've been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I've never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I never could understand it. But when you pointed at me and said that a person could not, that a person could be an archdeacon and not be born again, I understood what the trouble was. Would you please come and talk with me? Of course, Bishop Smith did talk with him, and the archdeacon responded to, the, to Christ's call of salvation. Well, what about you? Here we are, right? What about you? You may be religious, but religion cannot save you. You must be born again. Don't settle for anything less. Cry out to God that he would cause you to be born again. Bow with me in prayer, please. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to be together today. And Lord, it is the most sacred of all times of our week as we bow before your sovereignty and you speak to us through your word. We thank you that you save sinners just like us, not on the basis of anything that we've done, but when we recognize that we're totally undone, And when we come to the point of spiritual emptiness and bankruptcy and we cry out with the public and God be merciful to me, a sinner. May every heart here, every soul, every mind recognize that we all live forever in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of hell, pain unending. And that the kingdom is only available to those whom you give life from above. All that we can do is pound our chest and beg you to be merciful. Grant life to us, Lord. Grant faith to us. Grant repentance to us. We have the promise that whoever comes to you, you won't turn away. Those promptings to come, Lord, we recognize that you initiate those So where those desires rise up in our hearts, Lord, may we recognize those as your spirit at work within us. Lord, bring people into your kingdom. Give them life from above. May they believe in Christ, the Holy One, the Son of God, the Lord and Savior, crucified and risen from the grave, and in believing, have eternal life. Help us, Lord, to have opportunity to proclaim the glories of that new birth that you've taught us from your word. 
Lord, I pray that you will bless this precious congregation of people this morning. Give them open doors to talk about what it means to be born from above. And may they be instruments that you can use even as the Lord spoke to Nicodemus. May they find people with whom they can share the gospel with this week. And may you be gracious to open hearts. That's our prayer this morning, Lord. Open hearts for your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.